please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. I also have the passage for you on the insert in your bulletin. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 19, starting at verse 21. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Just the knowledge of the salvation we have received wants us, or compels us to share faith in Christ with others, to let them know the gospel, let them know how they can be right with God, have peace with God through Christ. Um, Jesus commissioned the church to proclaim the message of the gospel, and as individuals, uh, we are ministers of reconciliation. That doesn't just mean between each other. We can't have that between each other unless we have it with God, and so the gospel is the message, the stewardship we have to share. And it seems as though um, we've enjoyed a long freedom of this, especially in our nation, to be able to preach freely. You could even say the earliest uh, founders of our country, many of them believe this message of the gospel. They came here to have freedom to believe the gospel and preach the gospel. And uh, we've seen the fruit of that in many ways over the course of our nation's history. But there's definitely been a change in American culture's tolerance for gospel preaching. Um, We're still free to do so, but there has been a growing opposition uh, both civilly or socially as well as governmentally in recent years. And this increasing pressure against the biblical gospel or the preaching of it or the truths associated with the gospel in God's word Um, That increasing pressure can be a bit disheartening when you think about it, especially when you consider the stewardship that we've enjoyed for so long. But we have in our passage today a reminder, I think an encouragement, about God's sovereignty over these situations. It may seem difficult, but God is still just as much in control as he ever was. And we see that unfold several times in the book of Acts in Corinth, where Paul enjoyed over 18 months of open gospel preaching, and now in Ephesus. And keep in mind, Ephesus literally had a temple bigger than any other temple in the ancient world dedicated, dedicated to Artemis or Diana. The Roman, uh, there's the Greek and the Roman names. But this huge temple uh, was in the backdrop of Paul's two-year resident preaching of the gospel ministry in Ephesus. So keeping that in mind, we gain encouragement when we see the Lord open the door for the preaching and proclaiming the gospel, even when the pressure rises. This is an example of that here in this episode that we read in Acts chapter 19. Paul is towards the end of his two-year ministry in Ephesus. He's making plans for the gospel to spread other places. And then we have this episode unfold. When the pressure's have built over time. The culture is seeing the effect of Christianity. Uh, It's literally cutting into the buying of little silver trinkets and idols dedicated to Artemis, and it starts to pressure to the point where the culture rises up and says, enough of this Christianity. It's cutting into our autonomy. It's cutting in to what we want to do and how we want to live. And so we pick up the passage, God's holy word now, Acts 19, starting at verse 21, Please listen as I read. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance 
concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who are friends of, were friends of his said to him, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we witness your gospels advanced all over the world in the book of Acts. We see it even today, despite opposition from the enemies of Christ. Lord, we can certainly feel opposition to the preaching of Christ in our own context and climate. Please encourage us by what we read today. Remind us of your sovereign hand that grows and guides your church. Build our faith in Christ by the preaching of your holy word this day. In Christ's name, amen. As one commentator said, the light of the gospel can expect to be opposed, and sometimes in violent form. As we are moving through the book of Acts, we see Luke's account by the Holy Spirit of how the church expanded and established. The book is descriptive of God's work through the Spirit to expand his church. It describes what happened in these early days. Now, while the book is mostly descriptive, showing us the unfolding of God's sovereign hand, 
we also will notice patterns that we can start to draw some timeless truth from, ways in which we might practice also in combination with other passages in the New Testament especially. We learn about God's character. We learn the ways the apostles handled their situations. These are not new situations. They arise in every epoch. Through these acts of the apostles, the consistent action of Christ's followers is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, the clear message that you can be forgiven of your sins by faith in Christ and his finished work. That is our mantle as a church and as individuals to know it and to be able to share it. And we are to do this no matter what pressure comes upon us. It's wonderful when we can enjoy less pressure and be able to preach this openly. But there may be pressures, and we still are to preach this message. God is sovereign over the freedom to preach this message. We should always attempt to, and God will open doors and close doors with regard to the acceptance of it. That's true corporately, as we think of the world we're preaching to, but also for individual relationships that you have with people. People will be sometimes open and sometimes closed. God's sovereign over that. But what he tells us to do is to be faithful to the message of the gospel, to be able to express it and to teach it clearly, no matter what happens. That consistently happens in the book of Acts. Different results at different times But that's the consistent practice, the preaching or sharing of the message of Christ. You know, there's a range of responses we have seen. It seems like there are always some who accept the message of the gospel when it's preached. Some reject the message of the gospel when it's preached. Some reject it indifferently, just dismiss it. Some reject it violently, like we see developing here. Some take matters into their own hands and try to oppose the gospel being preached in the future. Others will try to manipulate the governing authorities to crack down on the gospel being preached. Yet no matter what the response to the gospel's preaching is, God continues to move the expansion of his kingdom forward. God's demonstrable hand upon his witnesses should give all Christians of all eras and every time confidence that he will give opportunity for the gospel to be preached and he will produce fruit from that preaching. Outwardly, superficially, it may seem that there are barriers that are going to stop it. But in reality, God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the freedom to preach the gospel. Let's walk through this passage and note how this unfolds, and I think we'll see parallels that will encourage us today. First of all, we'll notice, as Paul makes his plans, that places and people, for that matter, open and closed to the gospel's teaching. That's God's sovereign hand. But we're to make plans to proclaim that message and share that message. Think in your own personal life with your family, friends, coworkers. In that way, plan and find ways to share Christ in your life and in your words. But then also, as the church develops plans for mission and how we would reach the world with the message of the gospel. Places open and closed to the gospel's teaching. And Paul knows this and operates with that idea. Verse 21, after these events, this is what just preceded, remember that the gospel taken hold in Ephesus, people were burning their occultic, uh, occultish books and such and turning to Christ. Uh, all of Asia had heard of the gospel because of Paul's two years of teaching there. Now after these events, verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit, he was determined now, to pass through Macedonia, that's Greece again, and Achaia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. 
he's planning to stop at some places he had been already, but then he had also looked to the future to go to Rome eventually. That would be his end place, most scholars agree. That's where he died eventually. He was in prison there for a time. He, he, was, he made goals about where to bring the gospel. We know what he was doing. He wasn't just visiting them for sightseeing purposes. He was going to preach the gospel. And he makes these plans knowing God's sovereign over the results of it, but let's make our plans to be faithful in preaching the message. He had a continual drive to bring the gospel everywhere, always dreaming of the next place to evangelize, remembering what evangelism is, proclaiming the message of the gospel. That's what evangelism is. God controls the results. Verse 22, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, so he's planning it out, not yet going himself, he then sends two of his helpers, one of his closest, Timothy, and also Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while, so he didn't leave Ephesus himself yet, he stayed there. He wasn't quite ready to leave Ephesus, so he sent his two trusted companions to go ahead of him. You know, Paul's been to dozens of cities by now, and we've seen the usual pattern. He goes into the synagogue, usually if there is one. He starts preaching Christ to the Jews. That's the first low-hanging fruit where they would have a background in the Old Testament, and then he could tell them how Jesus fulfills it. The gospel goes forth very straightforwardly there. But then usually some opposition would arise, and he would go out of the synagogue and start preaching uh, to the Gentiles or outside, like in Ephesus, in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. So the same pattern happens, and usually there's a good acceptance, then there's an opposition, and then he moves. He's constantly moving to continue preaching the gospel as the Lord opens doors for him to do so. Some places were more open than others, and for reasons only God knows and ordains, he opens and closes such places, sometimes very unpredictably. You can't see it coming. It's abrupt. As bad as it may seem, it may actually turn out for good in that place. So we don't stop doing what God commands, and that's what Paul demonstrates. As places open and close, we continue to preach the gospel. Interestingly, when Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote back to the Corinthians. Remember, he was at Corinth before there? And so he writes back to the Corinthians, describing his current situation in Ephesus, this time period. Listen to what he says to the Corinthians in light of what we know his context is. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, talking to the Corinthians, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. He acknowledges the Lord's sovereign hand over open and closing opportunity. Now listen to what he says to to the Corinthians from Ephesus. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Wait a minute, hold up. A wide door has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. So he doesn't see adversaries as a closed door. He just keeps preaching until he literally gets pushed out of a place. He senses that the Lord has opened a door for the preaching of the gospel. And adversaries might actually tell him that it's effective. Why are they adversaries? Because they hear what he's saying. They get what what he's proclaiming. And so, Paul pushes forward. He shares this understanding when he writes to the Corinthians. Ephesus opened to the gospel at that time, so he stays and preaches, even with the adversaries there. And really, this is true for all time. God controls the openness of or closedness of various places and people. 
He is sovereign over acceptance and rejection. Our task is to believe and to proclaim the message. That gives me great confidence. I don't know how you feel about it. But we are not sovereign over the results. We're just responsible to share it, knowing God will give salvation to as many as he has appointed. And it's his appointment. So we should be encouraged and emboldened to be clear with the message in all the ways God makes opportunities available. But notice this. Wherever Christ is truly preached, if he's really preached there, there will be a disturbance that happens. It will shake things up. That's why there are adversaries. Uh, the message of Christ clearly proclaimed will push against cultural idols and devotions and false notions. That's what we see here, Christ bringing a disturbance when he's preached. We've seen it throughout the book of Acts, but look at verse 23 very explicitly. About that time, two years now after his resident preaching, about that time there arose no little disturbance, a great disturbance, concerning what? The way. And I believe Luke uses this euphemism here just to point out or help us get why there was a disturbance. Uh, the way, just, just the name for Christ and Christianity as the way shows the exclusivity of it. It shows how it's a claim about it being the only way. It's not a way, it's the way. Just as Jesus referred to himself in John 14. This became a euphemistic for the Christians and their teaching. They're saying it's the way. Not multitudes, multitudes of different gods that we can all have freedom to serve or to worship. They're saying the way and it's Christ. There was clarity after two years of Paul's resident ministry exactly what the gospel was. Christ and him alone. That's the only way we could be right with God. That's, what, that's what's being proclaimed. And for a time, it didn't seem to matter. You know, the population was still huge, and not that many people were affected by that gospel message to where it changed their life. But now things are changing because Christians are not buying the stuff of the cult of Artemis. The statutes and the artifacts and the things that were sold as big business Christianity was having enough of an impact that they felt it. And so no little disturbance developed because of Christ being preached. Now, why does Jesus bring a disturbance wherever he's preached? Uh, the idols are different in every culture, but Jesus always confronts those idols. First of all, Christ exposes sin just by the study of his person. When you study Jesus for real, not one that's made up, but the real biblical Christ... Um, his person brings light to darkness, and we recognize our own sin when we see his righteousness. Just his person exposes sin. Now, if God grants you the grace to accept and rest upon him, that's a glorious thing. But if you're still holding on to your sin and your autonomy and your desire to be God yourself or to worship whatever you want, which is to be God yourself, it's offensive to see Christ, the righteous one. He sheds light on my sin. That's one reason why he causes disturbance. But also his claims, his actual teaching about himself, telling people to come to him. Again, if you have gr the grace of God upon you, you love this, that he's given you the way to be forgiven. You love it, you cherish it. That's why you're sitting here. But if you think you're all right, you don't want someone to tell you you're wrong, or furthermore, that you have to rest on them. And so he brings a disturbance to people who are holding tightly to their securities that they have devised by their own creation. It, it rocks them. It disturbs them when this comes. Also, Jesus, in his teaching, makes explicit judgments about worshiping false idols. Furthermore, right here in the immediate, 
And Demetrius, the man who raises up this riot, it's affecting him economically at that point. Now it's gone too far. You're affecting my livelihood and what I can enjoy on this earth. Jesus brings disturbance. Derek Thomas in his commentary says that our fallen world has always had its religions and has always sought to assimilate the true with the false. Scripture is clear. Idols are nothing. They have no powers. They are fictional creations of mind and soul that does not know the true God. They are real enough to the blind, enslaving their worshipers in in a complex array of superstition and false hope. The vacuum created by rejecting the true God must be filled with something else. And for us, it may not be literal idols. It could be, it could be our autonomy, our, our sexual freedom. That's a big part of what's on display. Our freedom to have stuff, the materialism, to, to have as much or acquire as much as we can, accumulate as much as we can. Don't get in the way of those, those joys that we can have or those, those senses of contentment we think we're striving after in those arenas. Those could be the idols of our day. It could be hobbies. It could be sport. It could be whatever. Anything that takes up the vacuum that from which God has been removed, the true God. So we can, we can certainly appreciate idolatry. All of us can. About that time, verse 23, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. It had been building up. And, you know, you're in Ephesus now uh, with the Greek pantheon of the gods. You have Artemis, that's the Greek name for Diana, the Roman god of fertility, goddess, we should say. That temple was considered one of the the wonders of the ancient world. The ruins are still amazing. But here now Christianity had picked up enough momentum to have impact that was tangible now against what was happening in the culture, and it causes a disturbance. John Stott said, the kingly authority of Jesus would necessarily challenge Diana's evil sway. That's what happens when Christianity comes on the scene. It doesn't mean Christianity is the majority all of a sudden, but there's such a profound impact in the people who are Christians that it has a statement that is made in some fashion to the culture it finds itself in, and that's what we have here. The way, the exclusive Christ stirs the people. Christianity having a felt impact now, with this disturbance, we start to recognize a pushback, and this is what happens too. We see this timelessly, right? The culture itself takes stock and notices this impact or this influence, and it pushes back. It says, wait, I don't want this. We don't want this. We want our own autonomy and our own freedom. That's what you have unfolding here before us. This society is okay with religion unless it prevails upon the common social mind, you might call it, or the prevailing spirit of the age. Now we don't want to have it. If you start to tell us we have to think a certain way or there's only a certain way in which truth can be understood. Whatever the collective value of a given society is in any culture, this will often dictate what religions are allowed. This impacts the culture we want too much, so stop teaching it. In fact, it'd be better if we just accepted all of them because then all... Ultimately, we would know none of them are really true. I mean, that's really what it is. If you say all of them are equal, then none of them really are true. They're just some kind of addition to our life for therapy. Just keep them away from me and don't let them impact the rest of the culture. That's what you see happen the world over. It's happening here. 
as, it gro- as Christianity grows in Ephesus. And then verse 24 comes to a head through one individual, and his issue is particular to him, but it resonates with the larger crowd. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. These are idols or little statues made of silver, probably of the temple or Diana herself. He made, he made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So the silversmiths made a lot of money off of selling these things. He was probably the head of the, the union or the guild for the silversmiths. There were such things in those days with various trades. And these products were a means of their income. Verse 25, these he gathered together, the craftsmen like him, with workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. He really tips his hand. That's his driving motivation right there. But he's smart enough to appeal to a wider audience who are listening at this point. Verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Now notice the irrational statement he makes, but in the crowd mentality, and this is so important we gather this, in the crowd mentality, if you say something loud enough and firm enough, people assume it might be right. And it resonates with some emotion they have and they jump on it, even though it's irrational what he's about to say. He says, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Well, Demetrius, they're not. But no, that's not what happens because he's building up an emotional appeal. It's not rational anymore. It's not reasonable anymore. This has to do with a prevailing sentiment that people just didn't like what Christianity was saying. Yeah, that's that's right, Demetrius. You're onto something. How could he do this? What is Paul teaching? And you see him lather up the crowd to start thinking and opposing what they were they were seeing. Verse twenty-seven. He goes on with his speech, and there is danger not only in this trade of ours that. That our, this trade of ours may come into disrepute, now disrepute, which only appealed to a few, right? But now he's going to spread it to make everybody feel it. There is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. This point of pride for all of us living in Ephesus, this temple could come into, into disrepute the world over. And that gets us business. That's part of our livelihood. And she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Now he's talking about the goddess herself. So on multiple levels, he appeals to the crowd to oppose Paul and Christianity. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Just, you know, let me give you a poll of what everybody thinks. Oh, well, if the poll says it, it must be right. Who knows if the poll's even been taken or who's made it up or whatever. But this is exactly what he does. And we see it the world over, time after time, epic after epic. This is how often... Opposition will present itself, and the culture reacts often irrationally, most of the time irrationally. Under the guise of protecting tradition and practice, culture fights back when Christ is preached. The clear preaching of Christ makes idolatry off limits, and the culture loves its idols. We love our idols apart from Christ, and so we push back. If the idolatry is personal autonomy, the preaching of Jesus confronts that notion. If the idolatry is sexual freedom, the preaching of of Christ confronts that idol. If the idol is materialism, then the preaching of Christ will confront that devotion or challenge that devotion. If the idolatry is nationalism, the preaching of Christ will confront that idol. Every culture has its devotion. Christ will always challenge that devotion. 
culture will then push back. I referred to Thomas earlier, and I refer to him again here. He said very wisely, the gospel challenges the man-made idolatries of our time, sex, money, power, self-esteem, leisure, fame, sport, and so on, he says. It, it charges that belief in these gods is utterly absurd. The, the idols of our time have the same supremacy over the hearts of people as they did in the time of Ephesus. They are obsessively enslaving these idols, demanding unqualified loyalty and submission. But the gospel challenges idolatry in all its forms. To give your heart to something or someone other than the one true God is an act of sheer foolishness. Yet Demetrius gathers everybody. They can't pinpoint what it is they don't like about Paul, but they don't believe it, and it's hurting them, and he gets them to a state, an emotional state that rises up. Vested interests were disguised as local patriotism, as John Stott said, under the cloak of religious and national zeal. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged. They were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In other words, we're done talking, we're done reasoning. Great is the God of the Ephesians, or the Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis, and over and over again, let's, okay, we're done talking now. We gotta, we gotta get our collective strength together to push Paul out. And if we can get a big enough reaction here, create a riot, then the authorities will kick Paul out just to save peace. Verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion. They didn't even know what they were running to. It says so. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Apparently they couldn't find Paul right away, but they recognized these two individuals were friends of Paul, so they dragged them in. This is the mob mentality. Macedonians, these Greeks who were with Paul They were his companions. This riot's starting to break out, and it's a huge riot. It's not small. It's in the theater. Verse 30, when Paul wished to go in to the crowd, he was going to go in and try to talk them down. The disciples wouldn't let him go. You can't go in there. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were prominent citizens, maybe members of the provincial board, who were friends of Paul's, they said, you can't go in there. Uh, who were friends of his, verse 30, or 31, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. You know, you can see him in this crowd. It's starting to grow, and they're going into the stadium, and it's a stadium. The theater conservatively would seat or hold 20,000 people. Think of Children's Mercy Park, even bigger than the Sprint Center. That many people could fit into the theater. We know this from the excavations of it in Ephesus today. And so this is a massive crowd that's now swelling and upset and coming together. And so you have uh, friends of Paul saying, if you know where Paul is, tell him not to go in there. They feared for his well-being. Verse 32, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is something important for us today. Um, As concerted as the effort may be to oppose Christianity, oftentimes recognize that there is a confusion with people who are not regenerate, who have not understood the grace of God by God's grace itself, and they, they are confused as to what they're opposing. They just don't like it. It opposes their autonomy. There's something they don't like that doesn't feel right to them. And they just react. And a lot of the people that you think are opposing are not as thought through as you might expect. Now, they're talking heads that are. Um, there are philosophers or leaders of philosophers who are. But the average person is often just in confusion. This is why the preaching of the gospel should still happen. Because God will work in those people because they are confused about what they're really upset about. They don't really understand. You Christians, you're saying this, you're saying that. I'm saying, hold up, did we say that? Uh, Let me tell you what the Bible says or what God says. And we start with the gospel and the ramifications of the gospel then work their way through. But this is a good picture of how it actually works. Verse 32 again. Now some cried out 
one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. You know, the only thing, uh, it was Bruce F.F. F. Bruce who said, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is shout itself hoarse. Just yell at it. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander. This is a Jewish man who apparently was respected and thought they thought maybe he could talk everybody out of the situation. Uh, whom the Jews put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but look what they do. They're, not, they're done talking. Uh, when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, for two hours, all they did is say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. No will for rational discourse at this point. At this point, the culture could take all it was willing to take and it pushes back. The message of Christ demanded that they follow another God besides themselves. They loved the cult of Artemis because there was no real demands from the fake God. They can make up the demands if they wanted, so they wanted Artemis, not Christ. That's what fake gods do. They're made by man, so man's really still the God. They were crying out for their own autonomy when they said great is Artemis. We will make the rules. We will determine values. We will live how we want to live. Any teaching that threatens our autonomy must be destroyed. In reaction to the preaching of Christ, the true Christ, the culture may say, great is our sexual freedom. Great is our materialism. Great is our equality. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Same thing. But notice this. The hearts of kings and Congress are in God's hand. Sometimes we see the government or civil authorities promote the cultural will. Other times we see the government or civil authorities be the agent of God's change, however God may ordain. Essentially, Pontius Pilate was in the former category, exerting the cultural will. We see in the early beginnings of the church that Peter and the apostles dealt with the government's turn against them. But Proverbs 21.1 never stopped being true. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Sometimes we see the king or Congress stand on some kind of principle. Sometimes Christians will gain cover from civil authority. Other times they will not. Remember Gallio in Corinth? who helped Paul's case when it seemed like he was going to get kicked out. There's an example of government actually helping to open up the preaching of the gospel. Now, verse 35, we have a similar occurrence, as this seems to get, is going to get really bad. But verse 35, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus. And what a masterful quelling we have here from the town clerk. He appeals on several levels. Men of Ephesus Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Relax. These Christians are not making that big of an impact. The world still knows we're awesome. The world still knows we are great here at Ephesus, okay? So chill, everybody. Just calm down a minute. We're still awesome. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. The town clerk For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers blasphemers of our goddess. Now that's interesting because you could argue they really were. But he's quelling the crowd. God is moving and using this town clerk to calm the situation down so the gospel can still go forward. It is therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen, uh, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There's there's a way to handle this if you have a problem, not, not by riot. They're proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. If you seek anything further, verse 39, it will be settled in the regular assembly. We're not doing this. Come on, we're not doing this. Now, what power does he really have over 20,000 people or, or, or a huge amount of people? 
even a few hundred. So he's really working on his skill as an order here and his power of reason to try to grab hold of people who are not being reasonable so we can see the hand of God here. For we are really in danger now, everybody, verse 40, of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And we know how the Romans break up these kinds of things. When he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What, What a great approach to this the town clerk brings, but we are under no illusion. We know that the Lord's hand is in this movement of the church at this phase. Interestingly, John Stott draws that Luke is recording this, and Luke is probably also building a case that would eventually be heard when Paul goes to Rome and he's tried. He wants to show that there was not a legal case against Paul. In every case that there could have been, he was dismissed. The example of God granting freedom of the preaching of the gospel here in this passage, I hope encourages you as it does me. We may feel tightness from our culture, even government tightness about preaching the biblical truth. But we should not stop obeying Christ's commission, even if we find ourselves in the minority. I like what this minority did in this passage. James Boyce said with great wisdom, It takes a lot of courage and sound thinking to stand firm when the majority are going the other way. But it's only people who stand up against the crowd who make a difference. The world is never changed by the majority. Think about it. The world is changed by a minority who hear a different drummer. And Christians listen to a different spirit and go in the Holy Spirit's way. We see it here in this passage. Most of us can think of some abrupt changes that happen once the gospel is preached. Remember in the Soviet Union in the early 90s, uh, that quick, abrupt change, like for 70 years the gospel could not be preached and all of a sudden the door opens literally within a year's time? Um, China seems to open and close on a regular basis. We support missionaries who have watched such fluctuation for years. One of our missionaries in Asia, who uh, has, they've had an open ministry, even though it's technically not open, but they've had an open ministry and all of a sudden this, these next two weeks they may not be able to worship for the first time in years. We just started supporting another missionary who, um, ironically, or providentially, ministers right where old Ephesus is, a very close place, yet the gospel has been able to go forward there. These are understandable, understandably stressful times, but what we see repeatedly in Scripture, it's God, not kings, prime ministers, queens, czars, or emperors who determine freedom to preach the gospel. It's God, not legislatures, councils, senates, assemblies, courts, or congress that decide freedom to preach the gospel. God is sovereign over freedom to preach the gospel. God, not governments, grants gospel freedom. This much is abundantly clear in the book of Acts. That's why we sang as our first hymn, Rejoice, the Lord is King. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. And that's why our call to worship reminds us of our call. What does it say? Sing to the Lord a new song, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared over all small g gods. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Remind us of your sovereign hand that opens the way for the gospel to be preached. Remind us that even when it seems closed, we are to go on preaching. 
Please manifest your power through the the proclaiming of Christ. Give us boldness and courage to proclaim this message of forgiveness through Jesus and his finished work. Move your mighty arm in our day and in this place so that Christ exerts dominion over the false idols of our age and frees people enslaved by those idols. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.